Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature some of the incredible slam poets who performed as part of Verslandia 2019, the citywide Youth Poetry Slam, presented by Literary Arts. High school students across the city spend the year writing and competing with their peers, and each April, about 20 finalists compete for the title of Portland Slam Champ. What is important about staying tuned for this episode is that these young poets are thrilling to hear. They will give you the chills, and perhaps bring tears to your eyes. And at this moment, when it feels our society is cleaved with deep divisions, race, geography, economics, and age, it is so important to take the time to really listen to young voices who are, after all, the future. These young writers come from all walks of life in Portland and have incredible stories to tell. In the spring of 2020, because of the pandemic, we were unable to host Verslandia as a competition and chose instead to host events and workshops for students online. This year, we're thrilled that Verslandia and our East Side Slam have been reimagined as an online poetry slam competition called Virtualandia, which will take place on Thursday, April 29th at 5.30 p.m. as a public live stream. But for now, let's listen back to the live slam from 2019 and enjoy these incredible poems and the roar of a live audience. In addition to hearing some of these stunning performances, we will also hear from the MC of the evening, Mighty Mike McGee, and also from a few students talk about their work. Just a quick reminder that all the poems you will hear in this episode are written by high school youth, and some contain explicit language and mature content which may not be suitable for all audiences. Here's our host, Mighty Mike McGee. I had started slamming in the fall of 1998. So uh, I hit the 20-year mark last fall. Yeah, I started writing stories, like short stories, when I was about five. And so I'd always sort of set out to be a writer. Uh, then I started writing screenplays in high school. I wrote one-act plays. I kind of wrote a little bit of everything, uh, hip-hop lyrics. I was going to be a rapper, you know. I can't really give you very many of the beginnings and endings of any of those those things. They all seem to sort of blend together. But... Poetry kind of won out. Poetry and comedy sort of won out. Um, in 2003, I won the National Poetry Slam. When I first started, you, you if you said poetry slam or spoken word or performance poetry, you had to explain what those were, almost always. If somebody said, oh, what do you do? Oh, I do this, you know? I'm like, yeah, but what do you do for work? I'm like, well, actually, that's what I'm trying to do for work. And so you'd, you'd have to explain it. I always had to explain it to people. Um, and slowly but surely, I haven't had to explain it over the years, you know, less and less and less to the point where I never have to explain it. Everybody's heard of a poetry slam. I can go into some random barbershop. I did today. Went into a barbershop and was chatting with the barber. And he, he asked, what are you doing today? And I said, I, I'm going to be hosting a youth poetry slam. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. And then he kind of went on about poetry slams. I'm like, this is cool. All right. Well, hello! Folks, my name is Mighty Mike McGee. Mighty because I eat, I can multitask, I eat two lasagnas at the same time. Uh, but in all seriousness, we're gonna do a poetry slam! Verslandia! Oh! Oh! Man, this is exciting. I've been doing poetry slam for a long time, you guys. I've seen a lot of this stuff. I've seen a lot of these poems. I've seen a lot of this poetry. I'm gonna do one for you later on tonight if you guys are, you know, stick around. I'd love it. Um, but before we do that, before we get into everything, I need to make some introductions first, you know? I want to make some introductions, and I need to introduce some of you to what Poetry Slam is. By round of applause, who has never been to a Poetry Slam? Okay. Four or five hundred of you? Okay. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, so what, 
what a poetry slam is, it's very simple. Uh, people of all ages, of all walks of life, of all sizes, shapes, uh, are, they write poetry down on paper. Some of them memorize them, some of them don't, doesn't matter. They then go to an event that is called a poetry slam or even an open mic, and they sign up and they hope that they can get up and they can read their poems. And then maybe there is a panel of judges. Like tonight, we have a panel of judges here. Sometimes they're selected at random, sometimes they're selected ahead of time. And those judges have scorecards, and they write down scores after every poet comes up and reads their poem. And it's pretty much that simple. Our job as an audience is to enjoy it, is to learn from it, to experience it, to feel it. You know, We can make noise. I like to think of it as a conversation. Let's have a conversation with the poets when they come up here. They're going to say things to you. You get to respond back at them. It might not necessarily be words. It can be words. Don't be afraid to emote. Don't be afraid to, to say how you feel in the moment. Sometimes people go like, ooh, you know? Sometimes people go, what? <laughs> I didn't understand that. <laughs> That's fine. You don't have to understand it. So. Uh, without any further ado, now that you know what a poetry slam is, the, the rules are very simple. No props, no costumes, no accompaniment. The poems are original. These folks have written them themselves. They're going to perform their own work from their hearts, their guts, and their brains, and then through their voices. And we're going to experience that together, like a family. Can we just sit down to a meal once as a family? <laughs> I feel like we're ready for a poetry slam. Do you guys feel like we're ready for a poetry slam? Oh. I feel so good. Now you feel that energy? You feel that energy tonight? You feel that when everybody cheers? Let's keep that going. It is gonna be a bit of a long show, but remember, we're hearing stuff that we don't get to hear on a daily basis. We get to hear, we're hearing hearts. We're hearing hearts beating, we're hearing hearts in between beats, all right? And that's awesome. Uh, but we can't have a poetry slam without a calibration poet. Or as I like to call them calibration poets. Uh, some places they call them sacrificial poet. And that's the poet, the very first poet coming up. Uh, they're in the show, but they're not necessarily in the competition. It's just to warm up the judges, and it's to warm up the poets, and it's to warm up the audience. Just to get us in that poetry feeling, that zone. Are you guys ready for your calibration poet? Your calibration poet tonight comes from Reynolds High School. Please give it up for Allison Riddle. Before I begin, I would just like to say, please, don't cry. No crying whatsoever, because I don't do well with tears. The very moment a shuddering sob reaches my ears, alarm bells start ringing and red lights start flashing. But there's no emergency protocol for an emergency eye leak, no handy poster or crier extinguisher. So what else is there for me to do but stand there? awkwardly and wait for someone more qualified than me to deal with this emotional catastrophe. Call me what you will, machine, monster, sociopath, robot, if I try to help, I'll just make things worse. Maybe it's because when I cry, the last thing I want is someone comforting me, holding me, consoling me. If the last words I ever hear are, you're going to be okay, I will rise up from the dead and make the whole world pay. Because when I cry, it is for one reason only. I am overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by joy, anger, sadness, fear, frustration, futility, but always because I am overwhelmed. So the last thing you should do is drown me in comforting words and smother me in sympathetic hugs because I am already feeling too much. I don't need to feel your arms around me. The noise inside my head is loud enough. I don't need your voice to add to it. You don't need to ask me what's wrong because I'm already asking what's wrong with me. Why am I crying? Why am I like this? Why can't I say anything? Why can't they understand me? When I cry, I want to go somewhere warm and soft and dark and quiet so I can wait out this storm and start rebuilding so I can be ready for the next one. Allison Riddle from Reynolds High School. Your calibration poet, big round of applause. That was very quick, that was lovely, I like that. 
Uh, so that was their calibration. So that means that now they know where their baseline is for scoring for the rest of the night. Okay. Are you ready? Ready for a slam? Coming up first, please put your hands together for H. Peter Fink. All right, so I wrote this poem in Spanish, but I've translated it into English. I'll perform the Spanish version first and then the English version. Baila mi moca, pide la estufa. Escúchame silbar, quemar. Mírame estufa, respuesta la moca pot. La moca baila con el ritmo. Los globos negros, como los gritos sofocados, volviendo, le fuerzan la cabeza a sosudir y cantar como el clave. El agua hierve, traquetando las maracas. Las piernas se muevan con prisa encima de la tapa. Las caderas tuerzan, la forma vuelca, y la danza ha acabado hasta mañana. Dance, my mocha, begs the stove. Listen to me hiss and burn. Watch me, stove, responds the mocha pot. The mocha dances with the rhythm. Black balloons, like suffocated yells returning, force its head to shake and sing like the clave. The water boils, shaking the maracas. The legs move with speed atop the stage. The hips twist, the form tips, and the dance has ended until tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, H. Peter Fink. Judges, on the count of three, one, two, three, an 8.2, a 7.4, a 7.9, another 7.9, and a 7.7. <laughs> Applaud the poet. Now, audience, you may hear scores that you like. You may hear scores you don't like. Now, judges, whatever you do, don't be swayed by what the audience says to you, okay? Audience, sway the crap out of these judges, all right? Just do it. Just go for it, right? Please welcome to the microphone, Jordan Walmut. The rose that told me so. I picked a rose today. The biggest one of them all. It was bright red and it smelled amazing. As I picked each petal, I asked myself if you love me or not. The last petal always landed on no. But I told myself, a rose is just a rose and what do they know? And for almost two years, I did that. I let my emotions and feelings, which I thought was love, blind me from reality. But I can see now. I can see how dumb I was. I can see the dirt that's on me because of you, but I'm clean now. I told myself everything will be okay, we will figure it out. But who knew the best for us was going our separate ways? You always said you wanted a break, but maybe I misunderstood or made a mistake because you let another girl take my place. Not even a week after. You see, you didn't move to the next chapter, you went to a new book, but that's my fault. I know all books don't end with a happily ever after. I got tired of reading the same book though. Wasn't getting no new lessons or knowledge with the same that I already know. Now I'm reading a book that doesn't seem to move on. Have you ever had to force yourself to stop loving somebody? It's hard. It hurts. But once I let go, the pain will go with it. Not enough love poems can bring you back, but one can set me free. I picked a rose today. The biggest one of them all. It was bright red and it smelled amazing. I picked one, she loves me. I picked two, she loves me not. But as soon as I picked number two, all the petals dropped immediately to the floor, just like my heart when I seen all the love I gave to you be given to her. And damn, she was ugly. <laughs> I picked a rose today, the biggest one of them all. I didn't pick any petals. It was bright red and it smelled amazing. I sat with it by the river. I threw it into the river and told myself to move on. It floated and it came to a point where it drowned. 
I stopped picking roses. Jordan Walmart. All right, judges. One, two, three. 9.9, 9.7, 9.0, 9.8, and a 9.3. My name is Dashiell and I go to Jefferson. So last year I was an alternate and that was really cool, but this year I got second place in my slam, so I'm like officially competing. I love slam poetry because my, my friends say that I've been drawn to it because it's like artful ranting. I'm very passionate about a lot of things, but I also, I like thinking about things in like the poetic way. And I like that slam poetry lets you kind of be angry, but also see the beauty in things in a way that I think a lot of art doesn't. There's this phenomenon that I definitely disagree with where a bunch of adults will just kind of go, oh, teenagers, what do they know? And I think it's getting better, especially in like the current rise in the political situation. I don't want to I don't want to get too political, but we've seen an increase in the media and in politics of teenagers really engaging civically. And I think that teenagers showing that they have an ability to work on their craft and have a talent and really nurture it and make something great, I think is something that adults should see. And I think it's also really great to show people that you can do this thing and other people can see you do it and then like start that because everybody should have an opportunity to express themselves. Please put your hands together for Dashiell Rucka. In 1917, the watchmaking factories employed predominantly women. They used self-luminous paint. It glowed and the women worked happily. It was the beginning of feminism. They made their own money. They were instructed to lick their brushes to get a thinner point to better do their work. Their bosses said, it's fine. Their bosses said, trust us. They always say that. In 1917, the United States Radium Corporation employed approximately 4,368 women. They worked with the powdered substance, whispered into their work, time will tell. And when I walked into that factory, there were warning signs. Black and yellow marked toxic, glowing with the radiation. I saw tables where women worked, saw them bleeding to the bone. I saw them and I saw your face smiling. You made me factory worker, craftsman, radium girl, happy to see me paint. The girls were told it was fine, even when their lips turned black, even when their jaws started crumbling, even when their lungs ached, even when they started coughing up blood. Time will tell, time will tell, time will tell. In 1928, the radium girls decided to sue the United States Radium Corporation. Sick in bed, couldn't lift their arms to take the oath. They kept winning their cases, and yet they never admit to the harm they cause us. It wasn't until one of the men testified that they finally paid. Some of the radium got on his hand. His bones were crumbling. Of course, none of the women were alive for it. But they say that where they're buried, their bones still glow. Dashiell Rucka. One, two, three. We have a 9.2, a 9.5, a 9.7, a 9.4, and a 9.1. Please applaud the poet. Please welcome to the microphone, Aaron Chalinor. Contrary to popular belief, is not a category primarily compromised by men hating, bitchy, bossy, resentful, pissy, unfeminine, single, stuck-up, vengeful, ugly, crazy, psycho, enraged, and annoyed women. 
But uh, don't worry, we do have our fair share of scathing she-beasts pissed at men's entire existence, and can you blame them? I mean, it is just men just, you know, chilling in Congress, listlessly dismissing rape cases and ignoring the basic human right of getting to decide what happens to your own body. <laughs> Buying pepper spray is just part of life for some women. For some women, it's like pressing next episode. You go out with your friends, you will be approached by a creep. For some women, their bra size is part of the investigation. The length of their skirt determines whether some women keep their jobs, some women keep their mouths shut because if they speak up, they will be demoralized, demonetized, and degraded. Some women don't identify as feminists because they want men to like them. Some women do identify as feminists because bossy can be kinky. Some women just want equal pay. But no, let's make fun of the girls speaking their minds in class. Let's call the male feminists gay because society is so obsessed with oppressing women that they make advocating for equality out to be a bad thing, that being a feminist is senseless and pointless and not needed. Girls get made fun of for supporting it, getting told they're being dramatic and that they don't know what they're talking about. Boys snicker at the back of the class as she goes on a rant. They say that she's just bitter for not having a man as if not having a male's ego to boost all the time is the world's worst insult that not having a man to rein her in makes her an object of I have found that most straight men don't want a raging feminist as a girlfriend, and dear God, I hope that's not why I'm single. <laughs> but no, they do want a woman who is strong and confident, but dare she question the privileges his gender gives him, dare she be stronger than he is, dare she embarrasses him with her opinions as if she is his, too embarrassed by making fun of the way she gets excited about fighting for her gender, men have somehow twisted women into abandoning their fight to retreat to their doll cases and be told to sit still and look pretty and be silent and obedient. Instead of a fire, our passion is treated like a kindling. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. A wannabe flame drunk on the idea of becoming a torch. Like if you just scuff it away, it'll go out. Society has made women afraid to call themselves feminists because, in the words of our great president, that would make her nasty. <laughs> I'd rather have equal rights than a good image. Aaron Chalinor. <laughs> Judges, one, two, three. 9.5, 9.5, 9.6, and another 9.3. Please welcome to the microphone, Nicole Davis. I write because a pen, a page, a mic, a stage helped end my rage and mend my days. I write because I shy from interaction, rather create the action. It's easier to skip emotions than link the ink into a cool cup of compassion. I write because for a while I lived in ignorance until your car obliterated my blissful oblivion. I write because honestly, my own honesty was beginning to bother me. I write because you were caller number two or three and the demons y'all have bestowed upon me are starting to get to me. I write because I had to face facts, negligent of the fact that it hurt me. I wrote because every time I spoke, it seemed as if my voice was ignored, as if my mouth was taped shut or my voice was mute. As I found the pencil and paper, I no longer saw the need to speak. As I rolled my tongue and almost swallowed, I found poetry. I had to learn to write because at 3 a.m. I could never sleep and physically my eyes were beginning to tote designer bags and my head was temporarily taking over the weight of the world once on my shoulders and mentally, well, it's a mental game, so night after night I lied awake with dreams of monetary gain and no pain. I had to learn to write because when no one was there painting pictures by pouring my past on paper provided assistance. I had to learn to write because I had to save me from me. Because me, I'm my worst enemy. I'd subconsciously chosen to ignore my divine energy. Now I'm struggling like mama making ends meet my friends peep the change in aura, the rift in my usual character. And I'm not boogie, but I guess I'm at war with my reflection. And we just lost Nipsey, so I'm lacking a little direction. And my heart is heavy. I'm thinking, am I going to die when I'm peeking? What if them coppers come get me a hating with a yicky? Them people hate us because they ain't us. So they'd rather degrade us, decapitate our abilities, limit the opportunities, pit us and get each other. Now it's tension between you and me. And what that do us? What do we gain from being distant? Beefing all on the net, you mad over a mention? Nigga, they're killing us really killing us and laughing up in our faces to show us that they don't give a fuck. If we're gonna preach our lives matter, they've got to matter to us first. They're raging war on black boys. They're hitting us where it hurts and that's at 3 a.m. 
That's how I'm thinking. So I start putting this pen to paper like it's coddling my secrets, but like a baby what used to hide started peeking because I never healed from that pain, just pushed it deep in. I had no idea that if I ignored my demons, they'd come back over time. I had no idea they'd set up shop within my mind. I've been crying, man, just to hear something other than thinking, tired of staring at this wall because I ain't even blinking. They don't hear me though. They don't feel me though. They see the scars, but they wasn't there when I felt the blow. When I was down, I had to learn to fight. I guess you could say I saved my life when I learned how to write. Nicole Davis. <laughs> Judges, one, two, three. 9.8. 9.6, 10, 9.9, and another 10. I love a crowd that wants to talk. And that is probably the most important thing tonight is that tonight is a conversation. It just doesn't, it's not gonna look like, it's not gonna look like a two-way conversation. Um, it's actually going to be a thousand-way conversation. Uh, and we don't realize that uh, applause, clapping, cheering, screaming, whistling, uh, humming, ooing, eyeing, those are all words in, in, in some language, you know, that we all do understand. We, we take it in, we receive it, and it makes us feel something. So um, when a poet goes up there, no matter how old they are, from four years old to 104 years old, you know, the moment somebody goes up there to, to speak as long as it's from their truth and it seems it feels genuine, looks genuine, um, then the audience is going to respond and that will be a conversation. Um, and so tonight is all about conversation. It's all about generating conversation. Um, and somebody's going to go home tonight and they're going to be just dazzled and, and wowed by the idea that somebody a third their age, a quarter of their age, made them think about something they had never considered before. Please welcome up to the microphone. Ariana Peters. This is called, Success is Not Something I Seem to Want. What are you? Are you the sweet yet fleeting feeling of a job well done? Are you the shimmering object I received when I caught the ball the teacher kicked in fifth grade? A reward? You've blessed me with my 15 minutes of fame, the success that I was only found in my report cards. The consecutive A's in your mind read smart, able, but most importantly, healthy. Do I look healthy to you? Does my voice sound youthful and resilient? Now listen to me as I stumble over my words to convey to you that surprisingly, I'm not a mentally stable teenager. I'm going to be honest. I've asked myself the question of do I matter? What value does my life have? But oh, no one had a clue because the A's on my report card and my name on the honor roll don't only communicate my competence, but are also a public documentation of my mental state. And what was the doctor's verdict? Oh, would you look at that? A lifetime supply of happiness and satisfaction. But if you'd only take the time to read the fine print, you would find that this doctor isn't a reliable source. I think we should find a second opinion. I said I think we should find a second opinion. Any volunteers? How about we choose me? The woman behind the mystery mask, the reliable's doctor note that we've all been waiting for. Now you ask me for my verdict and I shall bestow upon you just that. Now I say that yes, this girl is indeed competent and able, but healthy she is not, eating excessively, sleeping constantly. Her phrases read, don't ask me how I am. I don't need or want your attention. They're giving you attention because your exterior expression screams severe depression. I don't need your emotional support. I'm fine, leave me alone. Sweetie, no you're not. You fooled yourself into thinking you could be coddled in the arms of, this, of the first doctor that has lied to everyone forever. Always knowing there were expectations in everyone's voice. The sound grew stronger, I grew weaker. You can totally do it, they said. You'll do great. They said you can't do this. Really, well compared to how you did last year, the questions come pouring out of their mouths, oozing like tar, so much that the second doctor hides their verdict away, along with many others. They keep asking, the sound gets louder, the questions make this room that I've hidden myself in get bigger, only creating more space to get lost in, and only traps the expectations I've adopted from everyone else to swirl around in my head. 
It's hard to get them to understand when I don't even know what I'm capable of. When I keep setting bars for myself that I can't reach the next day. They say jump higher, but my legs are buckling. I don't know what to do. The smart person you know. Does she ask questions? Does she raise her hand or demand answers? Does she stand tall above the crowd, the peacock in the land of pigeons? I start looking for myself in your eyes. The sight is foggy, but I spend five years trying to find out what you want me to be. My brain is giving up on me. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning or what show I was watching when the commercials come on. I want to be able to do something so badly that it seems like I can't do anything because if I can do something, my legs will stop buckling. The bar will stop moving and people can stop comparing me to myself. Thank you. Ariana Peters. Judges, one, two, three. 8.7, 8.9, 9.2, 9.0, and another 9.0. But please applaud for the poet. Please welcome Elisa Mickelson. to shout. I wanted to scream until the burning in my throat willed me to stop. I wanted to let the fire in my bones out, show you the strength that you were so sure I didn't have, that you're still so sure I don't have. More than anything, I wanted you to love me. I wanted you to see me for the woman I felt I was, not the little girl you believe me to be. Some nights I still don't sleep. I lay curled beneath covers, pretending their weight is your arms, as if pretending would bring you back. Maybe it's that a part of me still believes that if I lie awake long enough, you'll walk through that door the same way you did so long ago. Or maybe it's that my mind likes to play sick games behind closed eyelids. It spins a story of us, one where we were happy, one where our lives weren't another game of Russian roulette. One where you and I were the definition of love. I know we never were. You and I were a battleground. It's time you stop using your words as ammunition, forming your mouth into a gun. I am asking you to seize fire. I am an unarmed target begging you to give me a chance. I understand that you and I are two very different people, but that never used to be a bad thing. You can't complete a puzzle if every piece were the same, and you'd and if you destroy me now, this puzzle of a world may forever go unfinished. Even with those words in mind, if you hurt me now, I'll understand. You wouldn't be the first to do so, and you certainly won't be the last, but I am laying down my armor. We are killing each other, and the best thing to do is let go. I am done fighting for a happy ending when there is never going to be one. Some stories will never have a happy ending, no matter how hard we try. Some things are destined to end in heartbreak the same way waves are destined to leave the shore. You were my wave, and I was your shore. You pulled in just close enough to let your essence seep into my body, and then you drew back, leaving me with nothing but the memory of the way we fit together, and I know there was nothing I could do to make you stay. At least now, my matchstick heart isn't put out by the ocean that is yours. We loved in two very different ways. The closer we came together, the more we knew we shouldn't be. This is the hardest goodbye I'll ever have to say. And the best thing I could ever do. Elisa Mickelson. Judges, one, two, three. An 8.9, a 9.2, a 9.5, a 9.1, and another 9.2. My name is Ari, and I go to Wilson High School. I guess I just have to say that I've like doubted myself for years, especially when it comes to writing. Like if I open up my Google Drive right now, for every one poem I complete, there's 10 that I've thrown out. I think that people are their own worst critics and their own worst enemies. 
And I really just think that a lot of the beauty of poetry, especially spoken word, is just letting yourself go and being able to talk freely in front of people. It's a comfortable environment and it's always good to voice your feelings. I'm really thankful to like have the chance to share my story. I know that like so many people and so many communities don't have that opportunity. And so to be able to not just like go on stage and actually share poems that relate to me, but then also to talk about these issues in general and have an avenue to do that is an amazing opportunity. And I'm really proud of that. Please welcome to the microphone, Ari Lore. Last year, I woke to the news that a gay man in my community had been murdered. That same day, I learned that because LGBT is not a protected class, it wasn't considered a hate crime. I remember reading this in the news and thinking about that family, that this person who will never come home won't be remembered in the media for more than a week. I keep imagining his mom cooking dinner in the kitchen as the phone rang his dad running through the police tape, screaming for his son, his lover, replaying the scene over and over in his head. I can't stop feeling that man's last heartbeat in my own pulse, his chest heaving with heartache that he'll never come home. How is it that our president refuses to take responsibility for his own spilled blood? Our country refuses to protect its own people. Last year in Portland, police told a gay couple to ignore a man harassing them. A student was told to expect to be bullied for being gay. We are being murdered and society puts the gun in our hands, forcing us to pull the trigger. One in two trans youth have attempted suicide and are told it's their fault for being trans. I am three times more likely than my peers to be physically assaulted for the way I love. And how can we judge love? How can we say the way we love is wrong? How can love be wrong? How can the warmth of a lover's hand lead to a fiery inferno? Gonzalez 10, Nelson 11, Carson 18. How ironic that their names sound like Bible verses. We burn bridges with our own hearts just to live one more day, just to crawl into the family photo. Parents are killing their own kids in the name of God. What kind of God justifies murder because of who someone loves? What kind of God justifies parents kicking their own kids to the street? Only 3% of teenagers are gay, yet they make up 40% of the homeless population. Please, let them Come home, come home, give them warmth, hold their hands one more time, pull the gun away, please come home, come home, come home. I keep thinking about that mom losing her son over the phone, that dad running through the police tape longing to hold his son one last time, that lover begging God to save his boyfriend, to wipe the blood clean. It's been a whole year, and because of us, that man will never come home. Ari Lore. Judges, hold up your scores, please. One, two, three. 9.5. 9.8. Nine point zero, nine point five, and an eight point eight. Please applaud the poet. Welcome to the stage, Alana Kim. My American dream. Did the Asian girl ever get a caution sign warning? In America, they will roll your words like knives in between their teeth, and it will stab into your gut with every twisted syllable. Turn around and treat your grandmother's accent as if it makes her less smart, less human, less American just for having it. 
Do you think she knew the way men would crave her flesh with a fever for the yellow gold that resides beneath her skin? Some days their love could be more fetish than true. Most days her body was less hers and more colonized and that the people who mocked her for what they didn't understand would one day pick from the blood of her culture the bones that suited them best. As if such glory and triumph could become a costume as if it could be worth nothing more. The immigrant's child knows what it's like to lose, a currency dealt in sacrifices, mother-made-blood-bone-and-tears kind of sacrifices. I know what it's like to lose. And when the well-meaning white people would ask me, well, what kind of Asian are you? I would tell them that I am the dramatic kind. I would give them the words of my grandmother's tongue and I would tell them of how they fall off her lips in shattered pieces of a puzzle I will never solve. Reconnecting only to make the words I love you in English as bitterly broken as her mother before her. I would tell them I don't know this kind of Asian. That I've only been to Korea once and I can't speak Korean and the only thing I actually know how to say is saranghae. It means I love you. And it's the only thing I've ever said to my grandmother that she can understand. This kind of Asian is sometimes as foreign to me as it is to you. A piece of myself so integral I could lose myself without it. But so isolated, I don't know if it can ever find its way back to me, if not in pieces of my soul. And did the Asian girl ever get her caution sign? Your answer is no. I did not agree to be this white man's fetish, his golden chink in the chain of life. My mother did not say yes to this isolation given in a history of bitterness and broken backs. You see, one day, I'll whore my dreams out to return the sacrifices she's made for me. Let this body of gold get rejected by my whiteness just so I can get into college. In the end, America will have taken everything from this Asian girl. Love without violence, opportunity without color, existence without assault. Isn't that the American dream? Isn't that what my mother suffered and broke and bled for? <laughs> no. Silly me. That was my dream. And that dream was never about being great. Now, then, or ever, to this immigrant's child, America offered nothing but an ideal. Where dreams and prosperity could become my currency here. A land coated in the milk of promises and fool's gold. And such sweet honey still stings the lips of my mother today. Just as bitter to the tongue as it ever has been. Lana Kim. Judges, one, two, three. Nine point four, nine point three, eight point nine, nine point five, and a nine point two. Please welcome to the microphone Jordan Walmut. from I have a dream to I can't breathe. Martin Luther King to Eric Garner. Martin filled his lungs and gave a speech. He told his dream, a dream a lot agreed with or also had. Eric Garner yelled, I can't breathe 11 times. 11, you didn't listen to the first three, six, not even 10, didn't even listen to the last time because you had to watch him die to believe. You knew Eric had a dream too, but in that moment he dreamed of you letting go. Officer Panaleo filling his lungs to full capacity because he didn't take advantage of that when he could. We wear black tees saying, I can't breathe since you didn't hear, maybe you'll see. Do you see the pain in our eyes? Another black dies after how many cries, how many tries, how many times do we have to repeat ourselves? Black lives matter. And we shouldn't have to die for you to believe. Believe that we are capable of walking these streets free. Not scared to wear a hoodie on my head or have a bullet in my chest, another innocent black man dead. I don't want to be scared anymore of this up world where even our protection is against us. <laughs> Eric Garner died and four years later they have a trial to see if Officer Panaleo keeps his job, but 
justice delayed is just justice denied. And I'm tired of sitting and waiting and hoping for a change that's not going to happen. I have a dream to be protected and accepted, not a target and neglected. They have a badge on their chest and think they're better than us. They slap a label on our head, hold us at gunpoint. If we move, we're dead. But I have a dream that COP stands for caring of people and not criminals of permission. You see, you see, I would keep going, but I can't breathe. Jordan Walmut. <laughs> Judges, one, two, three. We have a 9.8, a 10, a 9.7, a 10, and another 10. While our math experts uh, convene uh, and decide who is winning what this evening, I would like to do a poem for you. Is that all right? I spent a lot of time, I think because my mom worked the graveyard shift, I spent a lot of time being awake, kind of worrying, being 12, and having four younger sisters and younger brothers. Uh, and watching them overnight and being worried about her being gone and us being alone and this and that. And uh, I, I sort of fell in love with the night. I, f I really, really fell in love with the night. So it made sense that when I started working and I had to get a job, I started working the graveyard shift. So this is anyone who's ever worked overnight, for, for anyone who's ever worked overnight or has felt lonely. <laughs> now I've been told that it can be dangerous. It can be so dangerous. I've been told that in 1500s England, they buried people prematurely due to a comatose state caused by drinking alcohol from lead and pewter cups. To eradicate these awful mistakes and to prevent many wrongful deaths, they hired men to sit in the cemeteries with lanterns and shovels to listen for ringing bells. These bells were tied to twine, and the twine was run underground to the wrists of the deceased. If the person awoke inside their coffin and scrambled for escape, their bell would sound six feet above, and the diggers would start digging. Hence, those buried alive were saved by the bell. And the diggers' work became known as the first graveyard shift. The only people at that time willing to work in the dark and sleep during the day. So, I'm at my new graveyard job at the mall. I stock toys for the kitties at Christmas time. <laughs> I work in the dark like Quasimodo because they would never hire me for a daylight position. I guess I just don't appeal to their regular shoppers. And I definitely don't appeal to the kind of people that stop by our store for spending thousands at Nordstrom. Come see the big hairy guy. Come one, come all, come down to the mall, see for yourself this big giant elf. I cannot dance for a dollar and I will not give up my dreams for a job. I work in the dark to enjoy the sun. I plan my life during my 10-minute breaks while the nocturnal animals play in the empty parking garage amongst littered shopping bags, receipts, and price tags. As the world sleeps, dreaming of designer clothes, bottled water, and a Beverly Hills lifestyle, I debate with myself whether or not I even have time to suck down one more cigarette. And if you can see the blue in this collar, then you know that I have learned quite well just how to differentiate between the day walkers and those that roam the night. I prefer the light of the moon over your basic fluorescent office fixture. The kind of light that assumes a distrust between you and your boss. The kind of light that peeks into and around every corner. Those are the lights the stores use at malls to scare away the shoplifters. And those are the lights they shut off when the graveyard shift punches in. They know that something's gonna be missing in the morning, so what's the point? The graveyard shift is creative taking what is never rightfully theirs, but obviously no one else's either. There's something so missing in the morning when the day crew takes over that the customers can smell it under the hot lights of omniscience. It is the creativity born with night walkers. It is how much the day hates the night. You'll never see a pigeon hanging out with an owl 
And you'll never see Beverly Hills hand me her phone number as she leaves the mall with her bags of, hey, look at me, while I enter the mall in an air of, hey, look at me. I mean, we're all the same, Beverly. Only you look pretty hot in your outfit. The way it exposes your midriff, your flat, flat stomach. I just wish you could say to me, hey, McGee, you look good in that dictionary. The way it exposes your ideals and manipulations, your faults and your ambitions, but we seem to take two different escalators to get to the same place in life. I'm kind of like banished royalty and you're upper class white trash. Day and night, day and night can never make love. They can only tease each other in a foreplay they call twilight. And the only things I regret at three in the morning as I solve the world's problems and chain smoke outside the mall is that I have no bell to ring and rainbows never, ever come out at night. Thank you. That was an episode featuring Verslandia 2019, the citywide youth poetry slam. The 2021 Slam is coming up on Thursday, April 29th at 5.30 online. To learn more about the event, including how to attend, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Krista Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.